Hey everyone, welcome to uh, what's this called? Divergent Opinions, I think. Awesome. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Ep- episode three. No, four. Four. Man, you're on top of things today. Wow. We got mics. We did. Courtesy. So of, we keep uh, making uh, incremental improvements here. Yeah. Last week we switched to Skype, and this week we've got uh, what are these? Your audio audio Technica USB mics. Twenty eighteens or something. I don't know. Twenty twenty USB something like that. They're nice. We're very uh, presency. I feel. Uh, yeah. It's like you're. It's like you're in my head. Yeah. I feel like I'm kissing the internet. <laughs> you do that a lot, though. I do. So uh, this week, sort of two main topics i think um obviously there was a lot of apple apple stuff this week uh the release of lion and a bunch of new hardware and then we're going to talk about some real nerdy stuff dealing with uh fpgas uh which is pretty cool pretty cool uh papers published this week but uh first off uh lion and uh new hardware what do you think so yeah it's out we can talk about it now yeah so we've been running Lion for a while. You're actually using it now, right? Yeah, I'm using. I've been using it for a couple of weeks on my uh, laptop. I mean, I've I've you know been running the beta since February, but um, using it as my full time OS on my laptop for a couple of weeks, and you know, no, no big issues. Except for battery. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna wait and see on that. Um, I've been having some issues with battery life but i'm not sure if it's directly related to lion or just use patterns or whatnot we'll see what other people think um but it does seem like it's taken a a hit to my uh 2010 macbook pro's battery life we'll see hmm yeah see i haven't i haven't made the switch yet i've got it on a second like on a partition on the laptop since i guess before you know almost two years now um, is that right? What? No, it's only been out since February. When did we get the first seed? It was before WBC. Yeah. Mm, okay, about a year. WBC was like four weeks. Wait, but ago. it was it was before that. It was six months ago. Yeah, right. six months yeah. ago. <laughs> Fair enough. But I haven't done much in it yet, just because most of my time is spent in. Xcode writing scope box at this point and scope box. Well, they've made some changes. We can't we can't write PowerPC code or target anything below Snow Leopard in in Lion in Xcode four one, which is the officially supported Xcode on on Lion. Although um, Getting Xcode three two running online isn't isn't too much of a problem at this point. Um, and actually, someone just posted on Twitter a way to do it uh, using the actual installer package. Oh, really? Um, you know, just going in and tweaking a plist, and then it'll install just fine. Um, and I think the <laughs> the key is that you need to install three two to its own folder, and then install four one after that, so that the sort of Unixy tools and things are four one. Um, but otherwise, uh, seems to seems to work. I mean, I've been building. Um, our apps on Lion now. Um, so oh, you've got those working now. Yeah, I mean in three two, not not in four one, okay. obviously. 
Um, but basically it means that I can, you know, do the, the dev I was doing in Snow Leopard and Lion now, not any of the new fancy stuff. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is important to talk about with Lion, because Lion, Lion has a lot of cool things for the user, a lot of new UI stuff, um, a lot of new features, but the, the really exciting stuff is the under the hood stuff as we've been sort of alluding to and other people have been alluding to. And, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, five years worth of cool stuff sort of in lion by that i mean you know that you will start to see roll out over the next five years because um you know a lot of it only makes sense if you can target people running lion or later and so for products like scopebox that support back to you know g5s running leopard um or clipwrap which targets you know g5s running tiger um you know you can't immediately jump on the bandwagon for some of the new amazing stuff that's in lion Right. But I mean, that's how it's always been. Absolutely. I mean, Apple always pushes out some new big innovation and mostly relies on developers to sort of drop support for all older versions in order to really sell users on upgrading their OS. Right. And some, you know, some developers will um, <clears throat> right away. And then, you know, in a niche industry like the ones that Divergent Media targets, that's that's a tougher sell um, than if you're targeting a sort of the whole Mac community where, it, because, you know, Mac users are historically very quick to upgrade OSs. And I think with Lion, it's going to be even quicker than normal because it's so easy through the Mac App Store and it's only 30 bucks um, and there's a lot of cool new stuff, you know, um, but you know, for niche industry people, um, it's less likely to be quick or they may have machines that just can't be upgraded. Right. I mean, for us, I mean, I would, I could, I could, for, I could see us going. You know, right now, Clipwrap is the one that targets the furthest back, only because we didn't really require anything, and I don't really. <coughs> excuse me. I would. I wouldn't really feel bad dropping support if there was some great feature we can add in new versions. Um, Scopebox is really the one that we need to continue to support PowerPC just because, you know, it really requires its own machine to run. And it's hard to tell someone, you know, you know, you need to buy a Mac for this. Right. Well, Although we'll talk about that in a little bit too. Scopebox is in a position as well where we're on the verge of releasing the 3.0 <laughs> version of the product. Um, which hopefully sets the product up for a while and, you know, could potentially be the last G5 release. You know, we'll see how things play out. Right. I mean, um, I could see that happening, especially since, I mean, 213 has gotten us a, a long ways now. It's been, it's been a few years since a major change. Right. And, I mean, you know, Skillbox is also the product that stands to benefit the most from a lot of the technology in Lion if we were to fully jump on the bandwagon. Uh, I mean, yes and no. So well, let's let's backstep and talk about what what's new. Yeah, what's new that's in interesting line. to us? Yeah. When what really jumped out of you? Well, I mean, I think you know, in the media industry, obviously, AV Foundation is is a big deal, or at least it it will be over the coming years. Um, and we've right. t- talked a bit about AV Foundation in relation <laughs> to um, Final Cut. You know, one of the big things that is added in Lion is the ability to um, do kernel-level drivers for capture devices um, to do, like, Blackmagic support, for example, to capture through AV Foundation. 
Right. Although surprisingly, it's for capture only and not playback. Right. Well, it's called what? It's called uh, core. It's called Core Media IO. Right. There's just no O right now. But right. the fact that they named it Core Media IO sort of implies that uh, there will be an O eventually. One would hope. Um, but you know, it's it's finally an ability to use third-party capture devices with something newer than you know sequence grabber. Right. Although, I mean, so right. So the idea is you can, from I think it was QuickTime three on, you could write something called a vdig and a vout, and those were two components, old Pascal style components for both capturing. Video VDIG was a digitizer component, and VOUT was an output component. And between the two of them, you could capture video in from a third-party device and send video out of QuickTime to a third-party device. And so that is what, you know, when you run your installer for Blackmagic or Aja or Matrox or anyone else, that's basically what's being installed, a VDIG and a VOUT. And what... What I found surprising, I mean, so so they've added a replacement for VDIG. At the same time, they've deprecated both of them. And you have to assume that they are talking to at least some of these hardware vendors. I mean, Apple's always had interesting relationships with, with these third-party uh, vendors from, from what I've heard. And it seems like the the favorite child of all of them is AJA, right? I mean, that's um, you know, I'm not you know, I guess uh, historically for sure. Um, but I think it's telling that Blackmagic has you know shipped their Lion drivers on day one, um, and AJA well, has not. Well, the story I've heard is that uh, they got some early information from right. someone. Yeah. Who we may know, yeah, um, and so they were able to to bug them a little early. But I mean, it's also telling that AJA was the the is the only one that's supporting V out right now. What? So, so Final Cut oh, Pro X yeah. shipped. Well, they're not shipping V out. And right. the surprise was, oh, there's no way to get video out anymore. And AJA has the only support for video out of Final Cut Pro X, which is basically a fake Right, but that's something, monitor that's not driver. something they added. That's just that they happen to have it around. They've had that in their driver for no, ages. No, that was a... They took. They they both have taken that out. Well, AJ but... AJ added it back in. Yeah, okay. But it's not like they went in and added something specially for Final Cut. It's that they, like, uncommented some code that was, you know, crappy code um, and then wrote up a PDF on how to use it with Final Cut X. Yeah, I mean, I suspect they had to do some changes. I mean, the Windows server has changed enough over the years that I don't think that was just a matter of uncommoning things. Um, although maybe it was, but if it was, it seems surprising that Blackmagic didn't do the same. Yeah. I mean, that was a feature from back in the days when their drivers were both being written by, or Blackmagic was writing drivers for both companies. Um. So beyond beyond capture and AV Foundation, obviously there's there's a lot of stuff throughout the framework right now, and then I think you know there will be a lot more. Um, you know, one interesting thing from the 
earnings call that Apple had this week where they sort of announced that they again made inf- infinite dollars. Um, yeah, wow. Is that They're they mentioned? Okay. They mentioned um, that the way they're accounting for basically all of their new software products now. Um, in compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, um, they're they're accounting for it in such a way that they're more free to add features to software for free, um, which has at least historically their reading of Sarbanes-Oxley been why they charge for things like um, software updates for iPod Touches and and some other things where they're adding features. Um, And so they've now changed the way they account for almost all of their software, I think, to allow them to have some more flexibility there. Um, And then the App Store model obviously lets them push things out easier. It'll be interesting to see if we get more um, incremental updates mid-cycle on some of these these products or if we are still going to be sort of on a, you know, you don't get major new features until the next big point release, the next big cat, because one of the things that, um, for example, in AV Foundation, a lot of people are itching for is um, support for other codecs than the ones that Apple supports. Out of the box, Apple supports H.264 and ProRes. Right. And are they, officially, are they supporting all flavors of ProRes, or is it just... No, they support them all in the component. It's just that they don't call them out as separate sort of components anymore. It's just... um, like flags you pass in now so you can get them yeah absolutely okay interesting um but you know it's obvious from looking at what what they ship that there's an architecture there you know that ProRes and h264 aren't like built in at some super low level into the framework they are essentially components that are being loaded by av foundation and so um you know, this is how Apple traditionally does things is that this is a sort of private interface right now, but once they're comfortable with it, hopefully, and I think we've, we've had conversations with people that would make us think, um, they intend this as well. They will open that up for other people to add component support. Um, it'll just be interesting to see if that happens in this in ten seven. Well, I don't think it's any, I don't think there's a switch that they're going to have to pull. Right. It's mostly they have to publish some specs and then yeah, I mean, but I don't think they're ever going to do that either. Do you? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't see them making it public knowledge how to build one of these bundles for codecs. So I suspect to go they'll. And... I suspect people who make codecs that they feel that they need to support will get a call. Fair enough. So that and they'll sign a bunch of NDAs, and all of a sudden. You know, Sony will ship a XD cam codec, right, or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I don't think I think the days of Apple making open frameworks for do for adding extension at that level are gone. I mean, even so, even Core Media I/O, which is you know their new public way of adding compressors, they didn't release any documentation, didn't they? No, they said come talk to us if you're planning on building one. Yeah. Uh. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's no public API for it. There's just, you know, you should talk to us if you want to build one. Which I guess is more open than a lot of the stuff they've done. Right. But, you know, only stuff that they've done post, you know, the glory days of QuickTime. I mean, QuickTime, everything was documented. I mean, in the days of QuickTime, I've got a book they published of exactly how their file you know it's the entire like file format documented in a you know paperback book 
a and book that think... is unfortunately still relevant. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't see them ever saying how to build one of these. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, how it shapes up. I mean, you know, I guess part of the issue and, and like, I absolutely get that they want this to be a future facing framework. And so, you know, they don't want someone to hack in swords in video three support using sort of, you know, just enough bit of wrapping around some horrible old, you know, ported 68 K code, um, to, to get it working. You know, they, they want this to be a modern framework. And so I sort of get why they've kept it very slim and trim in this initial release, but I think for it to be, you know, and maybe they don't care. Um, but I think for it to really be, you know, something that people use, there are some things that it, it should be supporting some formats and flavors. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, that seems pretty optimistic. That I, they're yeah, it probably about. is. I mean, you know, for I the think I think most future, they're worried about things that weren't, you know, not invented here. Right. I mean, for the foreseeable future, you know, everything has pretty clear fallback paths to fall back to to you know a Qt Kit server that gets spawned up, which then can fall back to old QuickTime if it needs to. Um, so, you know, there's there's a deep bench there for support. Um, but well, but not as... I mean, if you're a third-party developer, that's a fairly difficult code path to set up. Well, de- yeah, depending on how I mean, you implement it. If you, if you want to target AV Foundation, all of that fallback you don't get for free anymore. So QuickTime Kit fell back into you know the glory days of QuickTime if you if it needed to. Right. AV Foundation is its own little sandbox. Right. Speaking of sandbox. Yeah, that's another big thing. Sandboxing is another big thing that again you know well sandboxing is one that we're actually going to see pretty quickly because uh, it's mandated by the App Store come November um, and sandboxing something we've seen on the iPhone for a while but. Uh, you know, really locks down the world in which applications live um, to the point that applications really can't access any files on your system or do a lot of things to your system um, without explicit permission from you, and they have to be very specific about what they're trying to do. Right. Which will be interesting. I mean, I don't... I don't know. I haven't looked into too much because I ha- because we don't really have any plans to target the App Store in the near future but it seems like it seems like if you're doing something really simple it's not a very big change to your app but if you're doing something complex you probably are going to have to do something very annoying to the user yeah i mean it'll be interesting to see how they walk that line the 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 basic thing is that if you for example need to open a file when you do um I'm not sure if it's actually implemented in like NS Open Panel at this point, but essentially the open panel the user sees is not drawn by your app anymore. It's drawn by a separate sandboxing process um, that lets the user browse the system, find a file, click it, open it, and then that gets passed back into your app and a hole is punched in the sandbox to let you read that file. Right. Um, and there are all sorts of things. And actually the John Syracuse review of Lion goes into this in a nice way to sort of explain ways of doing high-performance I.O. and still living in a sort of sandboxed world. Um, 
Yeah, but, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty amazing hack what they've done with the whole sandboxing thing. I mean, the way that they run a separate process. Because the problem is, as soon as you sandbox an app, it can't see. It can't see anything. Right. I mean, you you have no access to the files on disk, which means if you want to open a file dialog, you can't browse the file system because you don't have access to any of them. And so the way they've done this with the the third party app, you know, Apple's own app, which run which launches basically anytime you do file open, and you know, it's this special blessed application which can go and look at all the files on the drive and then when you you know when you choose a file and click open it you know both alters your sandbox and then passes you back the path it's it's you know it's it's very interesting and the fact that it's a two-way process because your application can actually host a view inside of that NS you know what used to be an NS open panel right it's uh it's I don't know. It'll be interesting to see one if it's extensible enough for for people and where you know where sort of the edge cases are that you know what apps can't exist anymore. But it'll also be interesting to see if it's actually secure. Yeah, I mean, I think what one one thing that will come of it is it will you know force developers to write better code um, because they'll have to be thinking about this because you know a lot of developers. You, you sort of code yourself into a corner and then you do some hacky thing where you, you know, write out a file and read it back in or you, you know, shell out to a unit command or something to get, get a task done. And it becomes a lot harder to do that um, transparently to the user now in some ways, um, depending on what you need to do, of course. But, um, you know, it, I think it will force developers to think through the whole process they're going through when they're dealing with files um if you want to just sort of take a look at this you can go into activity monitor and turn on the sandbox column and actually see which apps are running sandboxed um a lot of the system applications uh, that ship with lion are already running sandboxed um and again anything that gets submitted to the app store will have to become november unless that date gets slipped right that'll be interesting i don't know I'm just trying to think of, I mean, for most apps, it doesn't matter. For most, you know, document-based apps, things like pages or, you know, any text editor, QuickTime player, any of those sort of apps, you know, it's really, I don't even think there's any changes that the developer has to make in order for that to just start working. Um, Because Apple's done a pretty good job of, you know, within their underlying frameworks, switching everything over so that it's sort of seamless to the developer. I'm just trying to come up with, I mean, what are apps that won't be, you know, you can't you can't write something like Daisy Disk. Right, a lot of the sort of utility type applications. And again, it's not that you can't write them, it's just you can't ship them in the app store. Right. So you can still sell them for a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. What other things are you excited about in Lion? Are there any other, uh, you know, sort of low-level things that get you burning um, hmm. passion? I I can't think of much. I mean, so the big thing they've they've changed they've made a change to Objective C, which is really interesting, called Arc Automatic Retain Counting, reference counting. at least reference counting. And the idea is that you, you know. Objective C is a language 
it came about before the advent of garbage collection. And so it required manual retain release. The idea being, you know, when you have an object-oriented system, you, you need to have objects that stay or that persist for, you know, however long they're, they're needed and then go away. Otherwise, you just constantly increase your memory footprint of the application. And so the way that Objective-C handled it up until recently was you it basically kept a, a counter inside every object where you said, I'm using this. And anytime you said, I'm using this, it incremented the counter. And then when you were done with it, you say, I'm done with this. And it automatically you know, decrements the counter. And if the counter goes to zero, the assumption is that you are done with that object and it can be released and the memory can be reused. And so, you know, the the two methods you use for that were retain and release, which is why it's called, you know, retain release cycle. Um, and so it's it's an incredibly lightweight system for tracking memory usage in an object-oriented application. The problem is it puts all of the onus for that on the developer. And it's really been, you know, most comp sci programs nowadays revolve around Java for most of their coursework. And Java being a newer language um, does something called garbage collection where you just sort of use objects and the system keeps track of whether or not you can get to that object anymore. So if you've stored the object somewhere for later retrieval, it knows that that object needs to be kept around. And periodically, it sort of digs through it, all the memory and says, OK, this object can't be, you know, there's nowhere in the program that can find this object anymore and reference it by, by name. And so I can throw it away. And, uh, and so, you know, most of the people coming out of a standard comp side degree aren't, you know, are used to that paradigm, the, the garbage collection paradigm. And, you know, most of the developers you're going to get for low cost, you know, outsourced are, are used to that paradigm. And most of the people you're going to get directly out of college and most of the people, you know, coming over from the PC are used to that paradigm. And so it's really been one of the hardest, you know, one of the, the biggest hangups for adoption of the, the you know the Objective C language when people try to port their apps or try to you know switch from being a web developer to being a you know an iPhone developer, and so Apple tried to address this once in the past with by adding sort of glomming garbage collection onto the application, and it never really took. It was sort of you know, the foundation level equivalent of QuickTime QTKit, where, you know, they did it for a few years and now they've replaced it. And anyone who adopted it in the interim was, you know, sort of foolish for believing that Apple was serious about it. Right. Apple never moved a lot of their own apps over. And, and for good reason, you know, garbage collection is is unpredictable um, in that, you know, you can have unexpected performance hits to your application when uh, GC runs. Um, 
there are... Right, so what happens, yeah, I mean, what happens is the garbage collector is this thing that exists in your program that periodically walks all of your memory and tries to figure out what it can throw in. And so, say you're writing an audio app or a video app and you've got to process 30 frames a second or, you know, 48,000 samples a second, you know, you need to be able to run these sort of, you know, schedule tasks constantly and what would happen with garbage collection is you know every five seconds it'd be like oh let me see if there's anything I you know it halts your program it goes let me look through everything you know I don't need that anymore let's and and it's like you know it'd be like trying to to run a you know like a trade you know a stock trade floor and periodically someone comes through and recycles all of the tickets that people are holding up and they just like stop trading. I've got to look at everyone's tickets to see which of these I can recycle. That one's not good anymore. And so, you know, it never, it was, yeah, it didn't work. Not to mention Objective-C is, you know, a giant pile of hacks on top of C. Right. And, and it's impossible to garbage collect it. Well, and garbage collection also just doesn't make sense on a mobile platform like iOS because, you know, you can't afford, well, you really don't want to have to throw any extra power away or any extra CPU power, uh, processing power away um, for something like that when you don't have to. And so, you know, in Apple's sort of continual march towards, you know, as unified as you can make these two platforms, uh, it, it didn't make a lot of sense that you had one whole programming style on the Mac that, you know, oh, you don't worry about this retain release thing. Oh, you want to build an iPhone app or you want to move code to iPhone. Now you got to go back and, you know, memory manage your code. Right. And so what they've done in a very sort of clever uh, alternative is something called automatic reference counting, ARC, um, which is a feature of Xcode 4.1, and it's a compiler-level feature. So No, it's a, it's a feature of Objective-C. It's really, I don't think it's tied to Xcode at all, really. Well, right, it, Xcode is how you enable it and you right. know, build your application with it. Um, and the idea is that now instead of putting those retain release calls in your code, um, you sort of follow best practices when you're writing your code and then the compiler um, knows when to add those retain release calls for you and essentially does that. Right, and so Apple a number of years ago started writing their own compiler, LLVM. And, you know, it's an open source project at this point. I, you know, I think they actually hired... It was it started as an open source project. They hired, you know, the majority of the people working on it, and uh, they, you know, they're the largest contributor to it at this point. And so they switched everything over from GCC to LLVM a few years ago, and have been innovating a lot. And I think it was in. Was it Xcode three one three two when they added the uh, the static analyzer? Uh, yeah, right around there. And so at some point they added something called static analysis, which allowed you to run run LLVM on your app instead of compiling the application. It would just go through and convert the entire application into sort of the intermediate bytecode that it uses to compile the app and then ran a bunch of 
quality control on it essentially and what it would do is it would say like oh you know one of the big things it did was checked all of your retain release code and so you would get back to these reports saying like so if you you know, if you run and this if statement is false and then it goes through here and then this thing gets set, you retain it and then you don't release it at the end when you return. And so that could cause a leak. And so they've been honing this static analyzer for a couple of years now and it's gotten really good at finding all of these retain release bugs in your code. And so what they, you know, what they felt confident of at this point was you know, we can find all of the problems. And so we just do the opposite, which is, you know, the way that we figure out that there's a bug here is we know what it's supposed to look like and we see that it doesn't look like that. And so what they decided was we can just have you not write the bad code that we check against. And instead we just, you know, build that truth copy and that is your code. You know, we just add the retains where they're supposed to be. We add the releases where they're supposed to be. And then... Instead of checking against how you coded it, we just tell you not to bother adding any of that. Right. And just um, to be clear, I don't think Arc actually uses the static analyzer. Um, it uses, no, it's based on Clang. Right. Which is where the static analyzer lives. Right, but I, I mean, don't think they, they actually run the static analyzer every time you compile um, to No, do that. but it is, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's based off the same code. Right. In any case. Um, the other thing, uh, well, one of the cool things about Arc is that because it's compile time, um, it doesn't require changes in the, well, it it means that it can run on things besides Lion, essentially. Um, and so an application built with Arc actually will run on Snow Leopard as well, and on the iPhone will actually work on older versions of iOS. Um, the only right, because literally they're just inserting those retain and release calls into your code. And what's what's actually cool is that because they're doing that, they can actually use more efficient versions of retain and release as well. Um, and so not only does Arc sort of keep you from leaking memory, but it actually is, is faster than writing your own retain release as well. Although only on Lion. Right. And um, the other thing you only get on Lion is during weak references, which is... Um, a way for when you're when you're sort of creating an object hierarchy um, for you to help the compiler understand relationships that you don't end up with sort of a parent and child that reference each other but are not referenced anywhere else in your application um, you know those could end up being leaked because they would each have a reference count of one but wouldn't actually be referred to by anything else um, but you can sort of help the compiler understand that um, with a weak prefix um, Attribute, yeah, yeah. Um, Although zero and weak references are not in there, they're not. It's in just there a, in it's a standard weak reference. They don't. They're not self-zeroing. Although there's, I think that's being added. Right. I that's think that's what I've heard. It, yeah. I I thought it was. That's not in there right now. It's not in the shipping version of Lion now. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. But weak references, yes. Right. I thought zeroing weak references was. Okay. Mm, In any case, zeroing weak references definitely will not work on Snow Leopard. So no. you should still. Unless you implement them yourself, right. which is possible. Right. Um, but, you know, I think this gets to a bigger point of one of the things I'm most excited about Lion um, from a nerd perspective is that 10 years ish after OS X shipped as a platform, they're still doing these really sort of deep changes that have really wide-reaching 
benefits. Um, you know, things like Arc that not only save programmers time, but actually make programs run faster and more efficiently. Um, and there is a lot of things like this throughout the OS um, where they've gone back and said, you know, how can we make this better? How can we make this run faster? And there are a lot of areas where they're getting st still getting orders of magnitude speed ups on tasks that happen, you know, millions of times a day on every computer. Um, which is right. just really impressive, you know. The and the NS number example, which is one that was documented today um, on Twitter. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's I heard about that about. A, a number of months ago. From, yeah, from a friend at Apple. It's you know, but I mean, the su the surprising thing is none of this is new. Right. I think you it's know. Just, I mean, like it, if it's exciting. Know, we, if we were Windows back. people, we could we could grumble and say like, yeah, you know, this is why Apple sucks because they, you know, they get excited about all these fifteen-year-old things. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is that they don't need to do this because computers are really fast now. They've put the time in the computer science into going back and doing some things because it will have a, a small but measurable you know, benefit across the system. And you do enough of these things and they happen enough times that it does sort of improve the overall platform. It's not like 15, 20 years ago when you were doing these hacks like, you know, or 30 years ago when, you know, Wozniak was doing these crazy hacks to sort of make the computer even work. You know, now you're doing these things because it's the right thing to do and it makes sense and you're willing to put the time into it, um, which I don't think is the direction Windows is moving. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it seems like, I don't know, I'm still, Apple has been very good over the years at just telling everyone, you know, suck it, we're moving to something better. You know, they did it with the transition to PowerPC, you know, from PowerPC to Intel. They did it with the transition from OS 9 to OS X. I'm surprised they haven't done it away from Objective-C. Um, you know, I think a lot of these things were still, you know, we keep getting excited about are because we're running a language which shouldn't really be used anymore. I, you know, I get that, but from a developer perspective, you know, Objective-C, take it or leave it, but Coco um, is a very nice sort of framework to build your applications within and you know by brute force or or what have you they've created a pretty nice ecosystem for developing applications um and when you look at what other platforms are dealing with these days you know i would much rather be writing ios apps in in coco touch uh than writing android java apps in terms of the quality of the experience and the quality of the product but i mean that's you know i i would argue that java is a you know, a superior language with an inferior set of APIs. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, if if Apple w would have decided, you know, at the time of OS X switch that they were going to do things in Java, I think we would be farther along than we are now. And we would be less excited about these, you know, things like not having to count references anymore. Fair enough. But, I mean, you know, it's, I, you know, the advantage and the disadvantage of Objective-C is that it's based, you know, it's a superset of C. Um, and, you know, the, it's really a cultural problem at this point that we're all still running C more than a technological problem. 
um, developers really like it, even though it's the worst language we've ever invented. <laughs> it's also the only one that works. Right. Consistently for every problem. As long as, you know, at least by version three of your product. Right. Well, in, in any case, I think, you know, Lion is going to be a really exciting time for the platform um, to see what people do with it. I think it is going to sort of spur some some cool innovation and in applications and in the way people use the platform. We'll have to sort of wait and see. Um, but uh, in the more immediate sense, in terms of things you can be excited about, um, and somewhat surprisingly, the same day Lion shipped, Apple released a bunch of new hardware. And not surprisingly in the sense that we didn't all know it was coming, but surprisingly in the sense that Apple doesn't normally sort of glom a bunch of releases together onto one day because, you know, why do that when you can space out the news? Right. But we got new Mac minis, new MacBook Airs, and new, uh, I don't know if they're still actually called cinema displays, monitor, new yeah. Thunderbolt displays. Um, I'm not like, sure exactly what the You can't watch is. cinema on them anymore? Well, I don't know. Their website was actually calling them like Thunderbolt displays. Let's see what their branding actually is. Which I think is actually the product I'm most excited about. Um, basically, we got MacBook Airs with Thunderbolt, Mac Minis with Thunderbolt. Both of those products also now use the rather amazing um, Sandy Bridge uh, chipset from Intel with um, Core i5 or Core i7 processors. And then uh, a monitor that not only has Thunderbolt daisy chaining support, which we all expected, but actually adds essentially a docking station, adds a um, gigabit Ethernet, FireWire 800, three USB ports, all connected via Thunderbolt as well. Right. So, you know, we finally have both a way to run multiple monitors off a laptop and also a way to plug Ethernet into your air. Gigabit Ethernet. Well, any Ethernet. Well, you could get a USB adapter before for 100 megabit. Right. But uh, it's a really elegant solution. I, I, you know, I'm shocked to see FireWire on there. Um, you know, suddenly it makes a MacBook Air a lot more practical for a lot of people because even though you're obviously not going to haul your cinema display with you, it means at your desk you can have you know speedy FireWire 800 drives. You can have you know obviously hardwired networking. Um, and then chain other Thunderbolt devices um, or, you know, more monitors, etc. Right. I kind of wonder so how they're doing this, actually, um, because they talk about being able to chain other Thunderbolt devices off of the monitor, but the Thunderbolt spec says that monitors have to be at the end of the chain. Well, no, they say mini DisplayPort monitors have to be at the end of the right. chain. Well, they also may have a Thunderbolt switch in there right I mean I, I suspect that they're branching the Thunderbolt in there hmm. I mean the the only thing they ever said was that the last is that a mini display board has to be on the end of the chain right and that's just because it doesn't speak Thunderbolt I mean it's right. I guess that's a good point yeah it's just one you know there no one's ever going to make a mini display board that will pass Thunderbolt through it and two you know, it just doesn't. It doesn't have all of the data running through it. Right. But it's a it's a really really cool monitor. I mean, it really is. Did they did did they change anything else? Did they rev the any of the monitor specs itself? No, right. It's no, the same. It's the same sort of uh, twenty five sixty by fourteen forty nice LCD um, with 
uh, the FaceTime camera is now officially FaceTime HD. Um, hmm. Same speakers and mic as always. Um, you have one of those, right? I have one of those at my desk, yeah, at work. Okay, and I've got one too. It's a really beautiful monitor. It's a nice monitor. Um, it's very shiny. Yeah, I mean... I still miss the uh, the 30-inch map. Yeah, although, honestly, for a while I ran a 30-inch and a 27-inch, and the 30 was so grainy compared to the 27. It's kind of amazing. Really? I got... I'm, right now, I got both of them on my desk, right next to each other. Oh, I, I found the 30 just looked like crap compared to the 27. Yeah, the fact that you don't see the window behind you helps, though. <laughs> well... I, I mean... I, our, I work in a basement office room. without windows. It's not there so much go. of an issue. Our living room is literally configured based on the 27-inch monitor well, and the window it's worth and their it. relationship to each other. But I, I, you know, I think both of these these <coughs> new Macs um, paired with this display are pretty amazing machines for for the video industry. Um, and the benchmarks on these machines are just amazing. Yeah. No. The uh, I mean, you know, this is, you know, the same thing we found with the, you know, when we got the first quad um, 17-inch laptop. Those quad, you know, portable processors are really powerful. And this, the Sandy Bridge chipset in general, I mean, um, basically, you know, the uh, sort of spec'd out, not crazy spec'd out, but high-end MacBook Air is faster than last year's high-end MacBook Pro. Um, right. Which you know, when you think back a couple of years when the MacBook or the MacBook Air was this woefully underpowered, like 1.4 gigahertz Core Duo, you know, machine that overheated and and had all these issues. To go to a machine that now, you know, can run you know Final Cut X, you know, as well as you know a really nice, well, as nice as the MacBook Pro that I spent three grand on that I'm sitting at right now. Um, Right. Yeah, I mean, really the only limitation on the air now is the monitor. Right. And it makes me, you know, all the more eager for them to move the MacBook Pro to a form factor that drops optical and, and you know, is a slimmer form factor. Yeah, I mean, I think we we both agree that's the way they're going to go, right? Well, I mean, I'm running my MacBook Pro. I pulled the optical drive out of and put another hard drive in. Um and it's it's fantastic. I you know, but I'd happily give up that extra hard drive space if I could have, you know, an enclosure that was a third the the thickness or you know was right. a quarter you know half the thickness but had a bigger battery or whatever. Um, I would I would give that up in a heartbeat. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way they're going to go. They seem to you know. I hope so. I've never you know longed for an optical drive in this computer. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they're long for this world. At least on the Mac. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the Mac Mini uh, doesn't have one at all. It's now this, well, it looks like the, the Mac Mini server has for a while. It's just this sort of perfect little aluminum rectangle or aluminum square. Right, so they have no they have no minis now with optical, correct? Correct. Hmm. Those will be nice machines. We're yeah. Gonna get, we're going to have to give them this. So they have HDMI out, Thunderbolt in. And they have in quad core, so they'll do. Well, what they've got are so they've got eight hyper threads. They've got three SKUs on it. They've got a really basic Mac Mini at the six nine or five ninety nine price point, Um, and that's not a particularly interesting machine. I mean, it's a great machine still. It's a Core i five, so you can get you get two cores plus hyper threading. 
Um, you can move up a little bit to, I think, $7.99 and get um, dedicated graphics and AMD Radeon dedicated GPU. Hmm. Um, plus, you can move up to a Core i7, which is a, a faster chip, but still dual core with uh, hyper-threading. Um, and then from there, you can move up to, for $9.99, the server, which gives you the quad-core chip with hyper-threading um, in, the, in the server platform, which also lets you add a second hard drive. Um, and it's a slower chip, clock for clock, but has the extra cores. Right. But I think that seven ninety nine price point, um, you know, basically, you know, one of those plus a twenty seven inch cinema display doesn't make a ton of sense because essentially you've built yourself an iMac. Um, but right. for people who have you know existing monitors um, or want to replace, um, you know, maybe an aging Mac Pro, um, that sort of Spectrum Mac Mini is a pretty tempting replacement for a lot of Mac Pros, for example. Right. Or I mean, for us, go box on that with a you know, an HDMI monitor in the field looks really nice. Yeah, with uh, Thunderbolt video inputs and uh, yeah, it's a it's a very nice machine. It's nicer than I was expecting, really. Um, you know, four gigs of memory standard um, and very configurable as well. They've sort of give you some more flexibility than they have for a while in your built to order options. That's good. Yeah, no, it's it. Both of those computers look like they're going to be really nice for. Uh, for video, for portable solutions. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the MacBook Air is is much more practical than any of the previous MacBook Airs as well because it's finally got the performance on par with the MacBook Pro line. Um, you really, you know, you only buy a Pro now if you need the screen real estate or the storage. Right. And so the other thing they did was they killed off the MacBook. Right, the, the old plastic MacBook. Plastic, white. Which I think is good. I think, you know, it was an odd product in the stores. I think it was probably tough to explain to people. Um, and I know as I've been shopping with family members recently for computers, um, it's sort of like, you know, you see the beautiful Air, you see the beautiful MacBook Pro, and then this sort of toy computer. Um, it just existed in a, a strange spot. Um, right. I mean, that combined with the fact that the design's basically been co-opted by the low end of the PC market, you right. know, the Chromebooks and others. Right. I think Apple, you know, wants to differentiate themselves from those machines. And, you know, they're they're keeping it available for education for now, which is a smart decision. Oh, they are? Yeah. Um, if you're buying in volume for K-12 or, or for higher ed. Okay. So not, not like you won't be able to buy it in your campus no, computer no, no. store. It's just if you're buying, you know, if you want to, well, for example, a lot of K-12s that have laptop initiatives. Um, right you know, standardized around those. And that's great. I think, you know, there would have been a lot more outcry over the death of it if they hadn't done that because people do sort of build long-term, um, you know, grant-funded initiatives around hardware, and it sucks when it just goes away one day. Um, and, you know, there are some reasons that I would, you know, rather give a, you know, sixth grader a MacBook, a plastic MacBook than a MacBook Air. Um, yeah, plastic doesn't dent... Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the sort of size and shape, it it's just a little bit, it instills a different level of respect, I think, than a sort of, you know, one and a half pound, 11 inch, um, you know, tiny little thing. Yeah. And I think Apple expects that by the time they just, they're really ready to kill the, the MacBook, most of those types of initiatives will be buying iPads anyways. Right. Or Chromebooks. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, the whole line, all the all the hardware makes a lot of sense. I don't think they shocked anyone with any of it. No, I think I mean the the surprise was how good all of it is, uh, which yeah. is a, a nice surprise from Apple. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the one thing we're still waiting on now is is the Mac Pro, which it sounds like is held up by um, just waiting on some uh, chipset or chip um, releases from Intel. So they're waiting on something new, right, really. Right, and they've got nothing to offer right now. Right, they need Besides. Sandy Bridge Xeons with uh, dual socket support. Right. So soon, hopefully, I mean, but. I don't know what how what what are your feelings on the Mac Pro? There's you know there's always the people grumbling that they're gonna die off because Apple hates hates professionals. Pros. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they'll kill the Mac Pro. I think that you know they only sell a hundred thousand or something a quarter, but you know that's a hundred thousand that are spec high. There's a big margin on it. It goes out with a lot of accessories and a lot of software licenses, and you know right. there's and. You know, on top of that, you know, included in that hundred thousand are the five to ten thousand they're selling to their own developers. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it, uh, I think it'll stick around. But I mean, you know, they've shown that they, I mean, that the the amount of time they are comfortable giving it between releases shows that they understand that market, and you know, that it's not a high priority. But I don't think they'll kill it off. Yeah. I mean, everyone, yeah, there seems to be a lot of arguments from people that, you know, Apple can't do everything and they can't do these things that are only making them, you know, $200 million a corner. But I don't really, you know, I've never really understood that, that logic. I mean, yes, I don't think Steve Jobs is going to micromanage those products in the way he does others, but, you know, I don't think the pros are... Are itching for Steve Jobs' input on right on yeah. how many hard drives on, they get in there. Right on what makes a good computer, since he's the one who didn't want any ports on anything ever. Right, and we both, you know, we both work on Mac Pros in addition to laptops. Um, yeah, I got four right here. <laughs> um, you know, it's you know some of it's just that we both grew up with desktops, and I don't know. There's I don't know. I mean, the happiest years of my adult life are when I did not have a tower. I, uh, you know, I go the back. The only forth. reason why I've gone back to towers is for testing scope box with PCI cards. I think that I could get by quite happily without one, but I certainly don't mind um, having, you know, eight cores and 12 or 16 threads and, you know, 16 gigs of RAM and some of the other things that I get on a, a Mac Pro tower. I don't know. I still miss the sort of the ergonomics of uh of a 17 inch sitting next to your 27 inch with like your twitter on the second monitor well see i just run being able to like always have it plugged in charging like little things like i you know now that i have two machines every time i go to the coffee shop my my laptop is not charged Mm -hmm. every single time just because you know it's it's in its case draining power and sleep for two weeks and then i'm like i'm gonna go to the coffee shop today and get all sorts of work done and i get there and i've got 15 minutes of charge left yeah and i don't have any of the files i need and i spend you know the first 30 minutes in dropbox or in git moving stuff around you know i just don't there there's something so easy about a single machine with all your stuff on it yeah that can go anywhere you go as long as it's not and you know the economy class of an airplane <laughs> yeah i you know i i 
I can certainly understand that. And it's gotten a lot better um, with cloud services and will continue to get better with cloud services to live that, that split life. But, it, you know, there's certainly something to be said for everything being in one place. You know, as I said, I could go either way. I, I This new MacBook Pro is, you know, the best machine I've ever owned by far. I, I really love it. Um, You've got, do you have the new one or do you have the... I have the, the last one before Thunderbolt. Okay, so you've got a dual core. Uh, yeah. Is it? You got a Core Two Duo. I have a no. I have a Core i seven, so it's dual core with four threads. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was amazed how fast the the quad core, seventeen inches. It's yeah. So nice. It's a pretty. Ridiculous. It's insane. Good machine. And that's what that's what's in the air now, right? Well, not the quad core version, but. They, I thought it was quad core. No. Not in the air. That's just the it's just the Mac Mini. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's too bad. Can't switch to an 11-incher for no. all my development work. Not so much. Fair enough. So um, one more topic if you feel up for it. Um, yeah, let's do it. I uh, saw these linked on Slashdot, uh, where I still visit frequently, which uh, gives you an idea of just how old I am. I am uh, user 15,000 of Slashdot. Oh, man. Yeah. What does that mean? I, I don't. Yeah, I was never as geeky as you. So you, uh, you get a number. Well, like when you you can see what number you were when you signed up. You know, like how well, many. Well, you people have to signed. sign up for. Sli- I don't even. Well, like you get an account so you can write comments and things. <laughs> but what's crazy, you know, with Slashdot, when you post a comment, it shows your name, but it also shows that number, and uh-huh. so there's sort of this implicit. Uh, you got all the. You get the street like, cred. Yeah, like this. Dude, post the mom's years, basement cred. Six hundred twenty-six thousand, seven hundred ten thousand. Like I could jump in here and be like, "What up, yo's?" And I'd be all like, "Whoa, oh my god!" Wow, I'd be a god among them. Interesting. You can also do the same thing with Twitter. There's a website that tells you what number you signed up for Twitter in. On- it like sh- no, it shows up in uh, the Twitter app. Does it? In yeah, it was, I ran into this number today. It's like in. You click on somebody's thing and then you go to their profile. Well, hold on. It shows to... name, handle, and then there's a number below, which I assume is. All right, let's see. see oh, are we going to compare our things? I'm uh, 1.6 million. You are. 12 million. Jeez. Wow. I am so much cooler than you. I, uh, some might argue you spend more time on uh, failed web products. Yeah, cooler. Yeah, fair enough. Um, anyways, these uh, papers on um, using sideband attacks or side channel attacks to um, reverse engineer the encryption keys on uh, FPGAs. Um, basically, an FPGA is a field programmable gate array. Um, it's a way of essentially, and this is an oversimplification, but building your own microprocessor with software um, that actually runs in hardware. Um, so that you can sort of write code and upload it to a chip that morphs into the chip that you've built rather than sort of spinning up a factory to stamp out chips. Again, an oversimplification, but that's the the gist of it. Right. Um, And the idea is that um, FPGAs have software loaded into them when a device is powered on that tells them what kind of chip to be. You know, should I be a audio converter chip or should I be a network router chip today 
Um, right. I mean, software is sort of a misnomer. They're, they get have configuration loaded into them. Right. Uh, uh, the FPGA bitstream. Um, and, and what that does is basically an FPGA is a chunk of sort of unconnected gates and logic, which then get wired together by that bitstream to build a circuit that does one specific thing very quickly. And um, so generally the software or this, the, these instructions are stored on a separate, you know, piece of ROM or, or, or you know, PROM or something, um, and they get fed into the chip at power on, um, and they're encrypted so that you can't, you know, download the contents of that ROM and find out exactly how this chip is set up and then build your own competing device or modify it in some way or insert a, a Trojan virus into it or something. And um, what these guys have done, these German researchers, is a really cool um, implementation of an attack that's been talked about in, in papers for a while, where they're basically able to look at the current draws on these FPGA chips during that the decryption stage and um, by looking at the, the differences between a successful decryption and a failed decryption, they're able to work back to the actual keys being used to do the decryption. Um, and then through some sort of fairly basic brute forcing using a, um, a Fermi GPU array, they can actually get the, actual, the, the keys necessary to decrypt um, that bitstream. Then they just dump the ROM, decrypt it, and now they can you know, spin up their own versions of these FPGAs or do whatever they'd like. Um, right. And they, the interesting thing is they can do it in one load. Right, right. They don't have to sit there and sort of hack on this chip for ages. Um, they can they just get everything they need pretty attach quick. Attach to the chip with a little connector thing, turn the th device on, and then they've got all the information they need to go back and later read, you know all of the configuration code for that FPGA. And so um, I, th I thought this was an interesting article. One, or there's actually two, there's two papers and then a third paper on the um, sort of foundational knowledge in this kind of side channel attack. Um, I thought it was interesting, you know, one, because it's this sort of cool electrical engineering hacking that I always just have deep respect for because I understand some of the theory, but it's still pretty magical um, when they're able to pull stuff like this off. Um, but also because in the video industry, you know, the video industry runs on FPGAs and this could be a huge, huge deal. Um, there's really only two, maybe three big vendors of FPGAs. Uh, Zilinix, how do you say their name? I, they, I remember. Altera is one. Altera is one, is one. the other, and then there's a couple other smaller guys. Um, this is the only two that matter are Xilinx, yeah. Yeah, Z-X-I-L-I-N-X. -I -I Sounds like some, like, 12-year-old handle on AOL. Yeah, well, apparently he was the one doing their security, too. Yeah. Zing! Uh, so Xilinx is is one of the big vendors, and that's the one this these papers are written against. And they were also the more secure of the two. And there's also um, sort of, you know, they imply within the paper that everyone is, is vulnerable to this. Um and even the people who sort of have gone oh. to the extent or gone to the trouble of hardening their chips against this are, you know, not immune. They're just going to take slightly more work. But, you know, when we think about when you think about options you have, if you want to build hardware, 
and we've looked at this a little bit, you can ship an embedded system that runs on a fairly, like a, a standard ARM or x86 chip, chip or RPC, right? Um, and boots an OS, you know, embedded Linux or a real-time OS of some sort, QNX or something, and then runs your application. Um, and so, you know, there's plenty of hardware that does this. Um, you know, you but have some not boxes. not video hardware though. Well, no, I mean, I think of like you know, Tektronix has some boxes that do it. All the fire stores. Um, mm, most of them are FPGAs. I mean, most of them have both. I mean, right? The they're, they're package now is a you know a PowerPC mixed with a Zillinix or Zinex Zillix. <laughs> right. One of those. In, in any case, I mean, the the point is that you that so that's an option. Um, you can spin your own silicon. You can design a chip and right. have it fast. Which is called an ASIC. And um, you can, you know, then assemble that into a on a board and sort of, you know, if you're going to build an iPod or something, that might well, that's not a good example because they didn't uh, do that. Those are prohibitively expensive. You yeah. have to be Apple or Intel or a few other companies to be doing right. that. Or I mean, you can use. You F place your order for the first million chips when you get right. one of those found. And you hope you didn't have an error. Right. And you hope you can sell a million of whatever you're putting those chips in. Or you can do an FPGA, which, um, you know, per unit, FPGAs are more expensive than fabbing silicon if you're going to ship a million items. Um, but you can sort of buy them in small batches. You can, you know, program them. You can correct errors in them. Um, you, you can, can release update firmware them. updates. Yeah. And um, they've Add really. Features. You know, a few years ago, FPGAs were sort of interesting for proof of concept things, but they've really become a foundational technology for lots of people in the hardware business. Um, hardware video, for sure. Hardware video, and also you know, network routing, um, a lot of a lot of things that need performance, um, but also need flexibility. FPGAs have really opened up markets, um, and when you look at things like you know the whole Blackmagic product line, or you know, well, you walk around NAB, and you know, you can pretty much guarantee that anyone shipping hardware um, that isn't obviously booting Linux is probably you know using FPGAs, and they're probably using you know Zilinux or um, Altera. Altera, yeah. yeah. Um, Those are really the only two viable options right. for video. And so, you know, what this means is that if I'm, let's just take Blackmagic, for example, they ship a huge range of really cool boards for doing signal processing, um, where, for example, if you need to convert an HDSDI signal into HDMI, it used to be that you bought a board for like a terminal frame that had like tons of hardware on it. It was, you know, full of capacitors and resistors and chips and all sorts of stuff. And a few years ago, Blackmagic came out with a a line of these products that are the same board and they're like a foot long by four inches wide maybe um but it just has one little fpga on it and then like a few traces out to connect to the power and the adapters right some capacitors for signal right but they, i mean they, they look almost you know comical uh when you look at one of these boards because they're basically empty but they basically realized that they were able to do all of this conversion essentially by writing clever software and then they've been able to build well, a whole line of these boards around very similar designs right i mean i think part of, you're making it sound like it was a big innovation for for black magic but i mean the biggest there were a lot of foundational changes in the industry that pushed this one is everyone switched to digital 
signal pass, which means, you know, which makes this possible. I mean, you're not going to build, you can do analog processing with an FPGA, but no one does really. Um, I mean, definitely not in the video side anymore. Um, there was that, and then two. I mean, they've just they've gotten they've been driven down in price a lot recently. And then performance has gone way up. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's uh, not like- transistor count has gone up a lot. The other thing that's gone up is they started packaging. So a lot of the Zilinux FPGAs, at least, come with a CPU in them. So they'll actually run. The problem for a long time was that they were very hard to program because you basically needed to be an electrical engineer. It wasn't like writing C code. You weren't like, do, 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 let me write a loop. You like had to wire up a thing you know, right. that did this with you know AND gates and NAND gates and NOR gates. And it was very, very hard to do. Um, and so one of the big changes was that they've made huge advancements on the Compiler side, so you can, you actually can now write something equivalent to C code, and and ship it. Now this is why I don't think that it's as big of a deal as you do that this has been hacked, because one, it's gotten drastically simpler to write the code for these, and two, my impression has been that people don't actually design code for these. Um. It's very, from, you know, we've explored doing hardware a little bit, um, you know, our own capture device or some such thing, or hardware version of Scopebox. And uh, from, you know, from looking at the, the Altera, you know, development kits and the, you know, the packages you can get, it seems like most people buy off-the-shelf components, what are called IP cores, which are basically little subroutines of FPGA layout bit code that they string together. I mean, it's almost like a graphical right. um, programming language where you're like, I'm going to take my frame buffer and wire it into, you know, it reminds me of um, Direct Show on the PC where you basically, you know, or like Quartz Composer where you take a bunch of blocks that you bought from third party vendors and sort of wire them together. And so I think the only people, what's the name of the company that does um, those PCI card, um, WaveVec? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to remember them, but. Omnitech. Oh, yeah. Omnitech seems to be one of the large vendors of, you know, video, up-res, down-res, IP cores. Sure. That seems to be their large business. I mean, they don't seem to make a lot of money on their their scopes. Um, I think most of their company is geared towards making you know. So they may get hurt by this. You know, I suspect. Well, there's gonna be a lot I more guess Chinese versions of their IP cores. Yeah, I mean, when you think about a company like Happen to check some to the exact same value. <laughs> right, right. When you think about a company like Behringer. Um, that you can you can Google the history of Behringer has a history of um, questionable uses of intellectual property, um, and or bribing factories to like silkscreen the Behringer logo on some of the products they're churning out for other people. Um, you know this opens up the possibility for a company like them that's willing to 
um, to produce, you know, really cheap versions of some of these products because they don't have to spend any money on R&D. Um, and, you know, they've been successful over the last decade in shipping, uh, you know, $50 cable tester that is functionally and electrically identical to the $200 cable tester. And so if they get into the business of shipping, you know, a $100, you know, HDSDI to HDMI converter board that is functionally identical to Blackmagic's $500 board, you know, there's a lot of people out there who buy that kind of stuff. I've bought a lot of Behringer stuff because it's cheap and it works and, you know, cost is an issue. Um, right. So I, I do think it, it could potentially be a concern. Obviously, this the, the attack document into the paper is not something that, you know, random Joe is going to implement, but it's also not something that's so impossible that, you know, a couple, you know, guys with graduate degrees in electrical engineering couldn't do it for you. Right. Although, I mean, it seems to me that the much easier vector of attack right now is to go to one of these companies, I mean, the business model for the people who do the IP cores is, you know, a fairly, you know, it's it's a steep upfront fee, but it's not, you know, it's nothing crazy. It's, you know, in the tens of thousands. And then a, you know, a relatively high per unit licensing. So, you know, you pay $10,000 plus $2 uh, a skew for a frame buffer and resizer. You know, it seems to me that the, the, you know, a much easier attack vector is call one of these guys, license it, file for bankruptcy, start a new company, and start churning out something based on their source code. Hmm. You know, it's not that much more expensive than hiring a couple kids to hack on something for a month. Sure. Well, in any case, it'll be interesting to see if anything comes of it, um, and not just in video, obviously, because these are, as we say, used across every industry um, in in varying ways. Right. I mean, what could be interesting is seeing people, you know. So it's not hard. It's not very hard to make a knockoff of another product. What could become interesting is, you know, we've seen a lot of hacking in the past, where you know someone makes a software, you know, firmware update to Canon's cameras, you know, that adds some sort of functionality. I, it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing firmware updaters for Blackmagic devices or AGA devices or, you know, Red Rocket devices that, you know, to start add function, start adding new functionality to these, you know, cheap commodified hardware that other people are already developing. Yeah. You know what's the what's the third party firmware hack for Canon cameras? Uh, I want to say like candle cake or light something. Candle whatever. And the way they do that is by you know when Canon releases an official firmware update, and then disassembling that on the PC side so they don't have to dump the the FPGA. But uh, you know as increasingly well, they're people, not even FPGAs. They're just oh that's a good point. With, yeah. uh, you know, the atom chip or whatever yeah. they got there. But, you know, as there there have been some people who have sort of done hacked, you know, firmwares for FPGAs by decompiling the, the downloaded updater. But as people have gotten more sophisticated and added encryption to those as well, um, that's become right. less, less I mean, possible. The whole, the whole reason why this hack is necessary is because you can now ship a pre, you know, the 
the idea is that these chips now support onboard encryption so that you can ship a firmware update that's in an encrypted state so that you can't do that. Right. Magic Lantern. Magic Lantern. There you go. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think it, uh, I don't know. If nothing else, they're uh, good papers to read if you uh, need something to read on your weekend. Uh, they've got some some interesting stuff. So are we going to post show links? Yeah, time? so what I'll do is I'll, solution. I'll put some links in the some field of the podcast RSS feed that shows up in iTunes. And uh, we're also going to start posting on the Divergent blog with um, more show links and whatnot. As as those come out, we'll create a yeah. We'll a add a category to the blog and then stick them in there with a link and whatnot. Sounds like a uh, plan. So uh, let us know what you think or what you'd like us to talk about and uh, what awesome things you think that we could be send more us awesome your trade about. secrets that you want to leak. Yeah, we're, we'd totally be interested in that. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. that's cool. Okay, so see you next week. We'll talk next week.